my privilege to open Ephesians chapter 5 and work through it with you this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. Have you ever wondered as a Christian whether pursuing godliness was a waste of time? I mean, think about it. God promises promises us to make us completely holy, right? No sin can be allowed into His presence. And so when we receive our glorified bodies, we will be made like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So, what's the point? Why fight so hard now against sin if God's already going to change us? We would all agree that serving God, that pursuing holiness, loving God, is the best use of our eternity. But is serving God really the best use of today? The best use of today? And I hope you see a flaw in this type of reasoning. Those who think that way, that godliness, pursuing godliness, pursuing holiness is a waste of time, those who think that way, don't understand why God saved them. They don't understand the value of becoming like Him now. I mean, we were spiritually dead, were we not? God made us alive to put us on display. To put on display not just us, but the display of His glory. So that the angels and the demons alike could look on to our church, to Christ's church as a whole, and marvel at God's grace. God does this. He makes us alive by joining us together with other people who in many cases are unlike us, except for our love for the Gospel. God puts His grace on display through us as He makes us more and more holy. Do you realize that you are saved for a purpose? Not primarily to rescue you from hell. That's not the primary purpose for which you were saved. But rather, He saved you for a purpose to prepare you to spend eternity with God. And in order for you and I to be ready to be holy in our glorified bodies, there have to be some changes that are made, right? And that's why chapter 4 of Ephesians begins with walk worthy of the Lord. And then later the Holy Spirit teaches us that that we have laid aside our old way of life and we've put on our new way of life. We've been adopted into His family. We are to, chapter 5, imitate God. We are to avoid immorality and impurity and covetousness because we did not learn Christ in that way. Christians don't act that way. Christians don't practice those sins that are mentioned in verses 3-5 through of chapter 5. Instead, we are called to be children of light. We are to wake up out of our slothful rest and live for Christ. And so the answer to the question, is this life worthy of our service for God? The answer is yes. Our life of service prepares us for an eternity of service to God. What makes you think? that you will for all eternity enjoy living a holy life if you take no joy in it now. God is preparing you for a life of eternal 
holiness and joy in that holiness. So we should take joy in our holiness now. This is what Christians do. Let me read our passage for us uh, in chapter 5, beginning with verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5. This is the Word of God. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Christians pursue holiness. Christians practice wise living, as this passage is going to show us. Christians practice wise living. Let me show you the command first, and then we'll see how we actually do it. So the command is in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, and then look at the last phrase, as wise. So not as unwise, but as wise. So here's how we are to walk, or that's just another way of saying conduct ourselves. As Christians, we need to conduct ourselves in wisdom. We need to live wisely, not as fools, as it's going to say, uh, in verse 17. So then don't be foolish. So that's the main command of this passage. Paul here transitions from his uh, talk of being children of light as opposed to children of darkness. He, he transitions in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And so we have... Uh, as Christians, we can't be slothful. Paul uses this passage here, these passages from Isaiah here in verse 14, to help wake up apathetic Christians. In other words, if your spiritual flame is dying out, it's time to rekindle the flame. And here's how to do it. Notice the first word of verse 15, therefore. Okay, so how do we wake up out of our sleep? Spiritual sleep, well, we need, to, we need to practice wise living as opposed to foolish living. Now, a fool is not a person who is you know, intellectually stupid, a person who's got a low IQ score. That's not a fool in the Scriptures. Instead, a, a, a fool is a person who is spiritually stupid. He doesn't understand what pleases God. He doesn't know how to please God, and therefore he doesn't please God. He lives to, to satisfy his own urges and lusts, like in five three through five. But but a wise person is not that way. A Christian is not that way. He does know how to please God, and he seeks to please God. He pursues pleasing God instead of wasting away his life. So how do we do this? If we are as Christians called to walk wisely, how do we do this? Well, Paul gives us the answer. The Holy Spirit gives us the answer through the Apostle Paul. And there are three ways. Number one, maximize your time. Maximize your time. Notice verse 16. 
This is a continuation of, of this command. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, making the most of your time. The word translating making, tr- translated as making here comes from the Greek word which means to redeem or to purchase, to buy back. And I think that's a, way, a, a helpful way of looking at our time. Imagine with me that you received all of your monthly income in one lump sum in a pile of cash and you put it on your kitchen table. And you were looking at that money at the beginning of the month knowing that you're not going to get any more till the end of the month. And you had some ideas of how you were going to spend that money. You know, a couple of things that you wanted to do in addition to the normal things that you do with your money. You, you wanted to pay down some of your bills or you wanted to take your spouse or your mom out for a nice dinner. But you never took any of that money from that pile and set it aside. And so, over time, people started making claims on your money. You know, the... The, guy, the gas technician, the gas station clerk says, you know, this, some of this is mine. And so he comes in and takes his portion. The, the lady from the grocery store says, no, this is, some of this is mine because you're taking some of the food from our store. So I, some of this belongs to me. And so on. And it goes on. And you get to, you know, a week or maybe a week and a half. And the pile is fading away. And before you know it, it's all gone. And you come home, ready to do that special dinner or ready to pay down that, those bills that you wanted to, and you look at the table and there's no money left. All the money has been claimed. I think we understand when it comes to money that a wiser way to handle our money is to handle it with care. To, you know, if we want to continue the, the imagery here, we would put it in the sack and hold it close to us and only pay for the things that we need before we start giving it out and and allowing it to just be put wherever. You know, I need to be up to date on my mortgage, so this chunk of money is going to help buy that. You know, I I need car insurance and gas, and so so I'm going to put this money aside and so that if there's any left at the end of the month, then, you know, maybe I need to save it or, or whatever. But here's why I'm giving this illustration, because I want you to see this is the way we ought to look at our time. We ought to think of our time like Paul tells us to, making the most of it, redeeming it, buying it back, as if our time has been piled up for us. You know, is it not true that we all have the same amount of time in a given day? We all have the same amount of time in a given week. We all have the same amount of time in a month and a year. And yet, we all use it differently, don't we? Some of us are more productive with our time than others. Others of us are lazy with our time and we, we allow it to be taken up by all these unnecessary things. You know, it's, it's like the pile of time is there on the table and, you know, the news takes up a big chunk of it. I need to be up to date on what's going on out in the world. You know, TV shows, movies, video games social media, and, and, you know, we get to the end of the day if we just picture our pile of time for one day. We get to the end of the day and we think, what happened to my pile of time? Is there no time for me to spend with God now? There, there's no time for me to do what is most important? And instead, we ought to hold firmly onto that pile of time and purchase the things that are necessary. You know, I'm going to invest this eight-hour chunk in 
you know, my job, I, I have to work, so I'm not going to miss that. And so here's what I got left. I've got this other 16-hour chunk, and I have to sleep, so, so there's another eight hours gone. So what am I going to do with the rest of this? Am I going to allow it to be taken up and claimed by other people, other things that are of little importance that aren't going to matter one year from now, let alone one week from now? Or am I going to invest this chunk of time that I own onto something that's going to matter, on something that's going to matter for my family, for eternity, for God, so that we don't get to the end of our lives or the end of a day and say, I wasted it. I wasted it. I just allowed things to come in and, and take a claim on my time, and I didn't redeem my time. And here's what we do. If we want to live wisely as Christians, we buy that time. We buy it like there's little you know, sections of things we need to do on a grocery store shelf. We buy what's most necessary. Why is this principle of guarding and using our time so important? Look at the second part of verse 16. Because the days are evil. The days are evil. It's so critical, Christians, that we handle our time properly because of the evil days in which we live. They are taking claims on our time, aren't they? And if we don't proactively use and invest that time into the things that matter, into living for Christ, then I can guarantee you that your time will be used for evil, if not unimportant, purposes. Do you want to be better with how you spend your time? It's going to require work. No one has ever drifted into godly time management. Like, wow, I just got to the end of the day and I can't believe how much things, how many things I got done for God. It just, I just kind of fell into it. No, we, we think, we plan, we, we exert our energy for the sake of God, for the sake of wisely using our time. So we need to work at it. So number one, how do we practice wise living? We maximize our time. Number two, we find out what God desires. Verse 17. So we make the most of our time. Verse 16. Verse 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now we would expect here for Paul to say, so then don't be foolish. Instead, be wise. So, that's effectively what he's saying in verse 17. Don't be foolish, but be wise. Here's how you can be wise by understanding the will of the Lord. And this is what he told us to do in chapter 5, verse 10. Since we are children of light, verse 8, then we try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Be wise by understanding what God's desires, God's will is. So many, so many times we think of God's will as something you know, mysterious and something we have to figure out, all the secret things of God, as if it's, it's hidden and we need to find it. And in one sense, that's what God's will is. God has decreed everything that will happen. He knows exactly what's going to take place in every pocket of the world, and he knows exactly all the way down to the rolling of dice, right? Even a lot cast in the lap belongs to the Lord. He determines 
Even the things that we would call chance. He determines all of those things and He knows them because He's planned them. And so we think we've got to find out what this mysterious thing is. But in other cases, when the Scripture writers talk about the will of God, like, like Paul does here, he's talking about God's desire. Not so much we've got to find in the, all these secret things and just get on the right path. No, what is it that God has revealed to us that we can find out what pleases Him? What is it? That's His will for us. His will is not something secret and, 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 and you know, we need a decoder ring to find it out. It is revealed to us clearly in the Scripture. And so we go there and find out what God wants. What pleases God? What, what does He desire and so it's not a secret thing. It's not us getting into the train station control room so we can know everything that's going on in the world. It is simply submitting to Him, understanding where we ought to be in life. And so very simply, knowing God's will, knowing God's desire is done by knowing God's Word. And then obviously the, the application for this is when we find out what pleases God, what do we do? We do it. It's very simple. When we find out what God wants for us, when we find out what kind of actions and reactions we ought to be having, then we simply do it. Christian, do you want to walk wisely? Then maximize your time. And find out what pleases God. And then number three, if you want to please God, if you want to walk wisely, then you need to be controlled by the Spirit. Verses 18 through 21. You need to be controlled by the Spirit. Look at verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, everything that follows verse 18 is a description or a result of being filled with the Spirit. So before we get there, the results of Spirit filling, I want to try to explain to you what being filled with the Spirit is. And so I'm going to give you four preliminary statements about Spirit-filled Christians. Four preliminary statements about Spirit-filled Christians. Number one, first, Spirit-filled Christians are not similar to drunk pagans. Okay, Paul is not making a similarity here. Here's why I say that. Look at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul's not making a comparison. He's not saying just as a person is filled with alcohol, so we need to be filled with the Spirit. Because that, those things actually are not alike. Instead, he's showing us a contrast. He's talking about what alcohol does to a person. Think about what alcohol does. Once I think about it too. Alcohol impairs our minds, doesn't it? It inhibits the person who drinks. Is that what the Holy Spirit does to us? Does the Holy Spirit inhibit our mind? Does He impair our thinking? Does the Spirit turn us into some kind of mindless mush where we just kind of waffle around floating in the drunkenness of His leading? You know, I couldn't make that last turn into evil because I was filled with the Spirit like, I, like a person is filled with alcohol. That's not what Paul is saying. No, 
instead of the Spirit turning, into, turning us into some sort of mindless matter, it turns us into a person who, who has wisdom that leads to action. It, it, it actually stimulates our minds rather than impairs it or inhibits it. The Holy Spirit stimulates us, makes us to think more clearly about the things of God. And Paul uses this contrast to show what formerly characterized us. And he makes a command to say that we need to stay away from that which is going to lead to a debauched lifestyle, a debased lifestyle. Do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation. So we're not going to have any part of that. We don't want our minds to be inhibited. We don't want our bodies to be impaired. We want to be controlled by the Spirit. Okay, so the first preliminary statement about Spirit-filling is that Spirit-filled Christians are not the same as or similar to drunk-filled pagans. Second, Spirit-filled Christians understand the source of their filling. Spirit-filled Christians understand the source of their filling. Notice what it does not say at the end of verse 18. Fill yourself up with the Spirit. Instead, it's said as a passive responsibility. Now, this is somewhat difficult for us to understand, but here's what I want you to see first, and that is that, that this is something that the Spirit does to us. He fills us. Not that we have to exert something so that, so that the source comes from us. No, the source comes from God. And so Spirit-filled Christians understand the source of the filling. Third, Spirit-filled Christians understand their responsibility. That while the Spirit is the source of our filling, we still have a responsibility. That's why it comes in the form of a command. Be filled. You, be filled. You know, we think, uh, you, know, you know, this is something that, that is passive, and so if we're completely passive in this, then we don't have to do anything. But Paul actually tells it to believers in the form of a command, that there's something that we ought to do. Here's how one commentator puts it. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Make yourself complicit to what the Spirit wants to do already in you. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. Fourth, preliminary statement about Spirit-filling is that Spirit-filled Christians are not filled one time only. We think when it comes to the Spirit and His work in us, He has filled us when we came to Christ. I was already filled with the Spirit when I got saved. And so why would I need to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit? Right? I'm already filled. So what, what did I tip it out? Did I, did I spill it? What, why would I need to be filled again? But again, this is a continual command. Be continually being filled. That's the idea of it. So it's, it's an ongoing action that we need to continually do. And if you want to just see some examples of this, Acts chapter 13, verse 52 says this, the disciples were continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, they had already been filled at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. In fact, Peter, he was filled at Pentecost, and then later on, chapter 4, verse 8, says that he was filled again. And then at the end of chapter 4, verse 31, it says he was filled again. So 
Why would Peter need to be filled multiple times if he was already a believer? And the answer is because we continually need this uh, within us. There's a constant need for us to get more of the Spirit. So how does this work? Should we think of our lives like a cup and the Spirit as the liquid in the cup? You know, He filled us up, so how did it drain out? How did it spill? I don't, I don't get that. I would suggest to you it would be better for us to think about it like Spirit controlling. That is, like in John chapter 16, this idea of being filled. The same Greek word is used in John 16.6 where the disciples, Jesus says, are filled with sorrow. What does this mean? Does it mean that their sorrow cup has filled up and then it kind of spilled out and and now it's filled up again? No, the idea is that they're being controlled by sorrow, right? That this is something that affects the rest of their lives. And so this is what it means, I believe, to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit. When a person is filled with rage, like in Luke 6.11, it's not that his rage cup is filled up, but rather... He's being controlled by rage. His actions are a result of the rage that is within him. And so instead of thinking about our lives like a cup and the Holy Spirit like a liquid, we should instead think of our lives like a balloon and the Holy Spirit being the air within the balloon. You see, no matter what size the balloon is, it's filled with the Holy Spirit, right? It's filled with the air. But what we want as Christians, we want to be more filled Sometimes the air gets let out. So we, the point is not that we lose our salvation and we got to get it back. You know, like if you think about the cup, it, it's almost like we lost the spirit. Uh-oh, we got to get him back. No, it's, it's that we want to be more and more controlled by Him. So we want this balloon to expand. We want our lives to expand so that not that, that, um, that we're getting more of the Spirit, but that the Spirit is getting more of us. This is Spirit-filling. And this is what Paul commands, that we be complicit. That we allow the Spirit to fill us up being Spirit-controlled. So, how do we walk wisely? We make the most of our time. We understand and do what the will of God is, His desire. And then we be filled with the Spirit. Now, now what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us three, three ways... Three results of being filled with the Spirit. When we are filled with the Spirit, when we are controlled by the Spirit, here's what happens. Three things. First, we sing. Verse 19. Second, we give thanks. And third, we submit ourselves to proper authorities. Okay, so first, Spirit-filled Christians sing. Verse 19. Let's read the last line of verse 18 just to get the idea. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So how are we filled with the Spirit or what does it result in? Well, it results in us singing. This idea of speaking to one another and then the next line, singing and making melody, it's the same idea. We're, we're talking to one another in songs. And the direct, so this is a direct result of spirit filling. It is singing to others and to God. Did you notice there are actually two recipients of our singing? Notice again, verse 19, speaking to one another. So when we sing, one of the goals is that we sing to one another. We help encourage them by our singing. 
And then at the end of the verse, making melody with your heart to the Lord. Okay, so we need to put off the mindset, particularly mindset, particularly when in a corporate setting, of this this individual worship. That this worship is all about me. You know, sometimes you see people who are just kind of, you know, closing their eyes and it's all about me. And not that closing your eyes, you know, makes makes that uh, guarantee, but but you understand, we, we can do this even in our own churches without the raising of the hand. We can, we, we can think that worship is all about us. But actually, worship is all about us. Not, not just me. It's actually when we are singing to one another. We're not just singing to God. We are singing to God. That's one of the recipients of our worship. And that ought to be the ultimate recipient. We shouldn't be doing this to make a show by any means. But one of the things that we're doing is we're helping encourage one another with the words that are coming from our mouth. Singing encourages other believers. And so, Christian, one of the ways that you are called to encourage one another is to sing out in a corporate setting. Notice the content of our singing. It is verse 19, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our singing to one another, very simply, ought to be filled with truth. Okay, One of the places that we can glean truth is from the psalms. And so we should be singing some psalms. The psalms are great examples of for us of what we should be singing because the psalms talk about the past, what's happened in history, you know, how God has led them out of Israel and so on. For us, you know, we should be singing about the past as well. The cross, God's faithfulness to us in trial and so on. The psalms also talk about things going on in the present. You know, things like our current state. You, you see a lot of lament psalms that this is what's happening. This is the, these are the inconsistencies going on in the world. God, show your favor to us. Cry out to God for help. Some of our songs should be talking about the present. And then some of our songs should be talking about the future. Like in the Psalms, you have songs of triumph, songs of praise, songs of trust, hope, knowing that you know God has won the battle over evil and it's only a matter of time before everyone will recognize that. So Psalms, at the, at the very least, it is actually the Psalms that we ought to be singing. At the most, it should be more than that, it should be a pattern for our, all of our singing. That it should be truth. Hymns, hard to know exactly what Paul means here, but based on the, how the Greek word is used in the, in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, it seems to be that they are songs of praise. Some sort of songs of praise. Um, and then thirdly, spiritual songs. This could be include all sorts of other songs that are, again, they have to be filled with truth, derived from the Scriptures about truth. But the point is they should be uh, encouraging and strengthening believers. Now, all three of these categories, and I'm not exactly sure how to take this, but these could all be referring to we should only be singing psalms. That we should only be singing these things that are called psalms, and then those that are psalms that are hymns of praise, and those psalms that are about everything else. And some scholars believe that to be the case, but it's hard to know for sure. What I do know is that we have a responsibility to sing truth to one another. Perhaps you're sitting here thinking, well, I can't carry a tune. But I would encourage you that God is not looking for 
you to carry the melody line of the song. He's not asking for you to come up and sing a solo or anything like that. He's looking for the expression of your heart to overflow in actual singing. You might think, well, well, I, I don't have a good voice. So I can't sing. It, it would not be helpful for other people. But I would encourage you on the, on the authority of the Scriptures that this is not an option. This is a command. Be filled with the Spirit. One of the results of being filled with the Spirit is singing to one another and singing to God from your heart. What would you tell me if I told you that I didn't want to get baptized following my conversion because, you know, I don't really like water. I'm afraid of water. Wouldn't you tell me it's a responsibility that you have? It's a responsibility for you to obey? What would you tell me if I told you I didn't want to confess my faith with other people because, you know, I don't really like persecution. And I don't really want to receive that kind of, of you know, dirty looks like you may get when you sing. What would you tell me if I told you that I didn't want to give money to the church because, you know, I like money too much? What would you tell me if I told you I didn't want to love my wife because, you know, I can find that, that I can love other things better, easier? What would you tell me if I told you I didn't want to sing because I didn't have a good voice and I didn't want people to look at me strangely? Christians sing. Those who are filled with the Spirit sing. It just overflows from their heart. It's almost like we have so much joy and expression that's coming from a heart that loves God throughout the week that when we come together, we can't help but, but sympathize with, with understanding what's being said and, and expressing that in song. And if that's not enough for you, Christian then you ought to look at the pattern of believers throughout the Bible. Old Testament believers sang. Did they not? Jesus and the disciples sang. We are commanded to sing, and I can assure you that heaven and eternity will be filled with singing. What makes you think that you and your glorified body will have a better singing voice or you'll have a better desire to sing if you don't enjoy it now? God's not calling for perfect notes to come from your mouth. He's calling you to sing, which is an expression of your heart. So, Spirit-filled Christians sing. Second, Spirit-filled Christians thank God, verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Spirit-filled Christians thank God. Very similar to the singing point that you know, it's just an expression of our heart. We can't help it. When we are controlled by the Spirit, we, we come forth and sing and we just sing. Here's the same idea. When, when we are filled with the Spirit and we're controlled by Him, we can't help but thank God. Thank, thanksgiving and singing go very much together. That's why, that's why it seems to be a continuation. Speaking to one another, verse 19, and making melody. And then verse 20, always giving thanks. Notice how frequently we ought to be giving thanks. Always. See that the very first word in verse 20? We ought always to be giving thanks. What kind of things ought we to be thanking God for? 
giving thanks for all things. Is it a trial? Is it a time of suffering? Is it a difficult situation? We ought to be giving thanks to God for it. And, and to whom ought we to be giving this thanks? The, uh, thanks, the end of the verse says, to God, even the Father. We ought to be thanking God for what He's done for us in all things. So as you're going through your day, your heart just looks at something. You, you see something with your eyes and then your heart just overflows with thanksgiving to God. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you for that. And the basis for which we give thanks is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a person who's characterized by grumbling or by thanksgiving? When you see things that go on in life, whether they seem to be good or bad, are you a person who quickly complains or do you quickly turn to God and give thanks in all things for what He is doing? Christians give thanks. Christians sing. Christians give thanks. And then verse 21, Christians obey their authorities. Verse 21 reads, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The third expression or result of a Christian who is Spirit-filled is that he is submissive. We're going to look at this more closely next week because we'll see how this is lived out in our relationships. So first we're going to start within the home and then we're going to move out to the workplace. So when, when we are filled by the Spirit, when we are controlled by the Spirit, we're happy to submit to our authorities. So we don't have time to go into what all that looks like, but for now we need to see that this verse actually provides a transition between living a wise life as a Christian and then living that within a relationship that has authority. So for wives, God has placed your husband as the authority over you. For children... God has placed your parents over you as your authority. For those of you who work, God has placed your boss over you as your authority. We'll look at how that plays out. But this verse really gives the transition. I'll go more into what being subject actually means to one another. I'm going to suggest to you next week that it does not mean mutual submission, that we each need to submit to one another. But we'll talk about that next week. In closing, I want to show you how we get filled with the Spirit. Okay, We've seen our responsibility to walk wisely by making the most of our time, by, by understanding what God's will is, and then by being filled with the Spirit. And we saw the results of being filled with the Spirit, that we sing, we give thanks, and we submit to our authorities. But how do we get filled with the Spirit? How do we do that? Notice again, this is a command at the end of verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. And then we have these three results, speaking to one another, verse, verse 19, giving thanks, verse 20, being subject, verse 21. And then notice verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So in order to see what this means, how we do this, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. So... I just showed you the structure. I wanted you to see that very clearly. Be filled with the Spirit, which results in singing, giving thanks, being subject, and then it goes right into wise. Notice this parallel passage here in Colossians 3. And I want you to see if you can notice a lot of similarities, but notice one main difference. Colossians 3:16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands. You see a lot of similarities there between Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. Okay, you should. Here's the first similarity. Let's look at it. It's in the middle of verse 16. That you teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the singing part. This is what spirit-filled Christians do. They sing. And then, notice at the end of the verse, with thankfulness in your hearts. There's the thanksgiving part. And at the end of verse 17, giving thanks. And then, we are submissive in our relationships. Verse 18, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Okay, so there are the similarities. Now, what's the main difference? Instead of saying, verse uh, verse 18 of Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, what does it say here before those results? Verse 16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Here's what I think Paul's doing. He's helping us to see a synonymous idea that to be filled with the Spirit is the same thing as letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The way that you're filled with the Spirit is by allowing the Spirit to be a part of you. So don't think of the Spirit, you know, moving you like a glove. Like, you know, when we think of a glove, a glove is completely inactive. The Spirit is the hand and He can move it wherever He wills. Well, and that's, there's a sense in which that's true, but... But we ought to think of the Holy Spirit more like the government. That He is the one who sets out like the government would the traffic laws. The government doesn't actually drive our car, right? They just expect us to obey the laws. And this is exactly how the Holy Spirit works in us. He doesn't work in us like a glove, like we're completely motionless and we just allow Him to move whenever He zaps us or whatever. No, instead... He is like the government. He's set out these responsibilities for us. And He's telling us very clearly, walk wisely. Make the most of your time. Understand what God's will is. Be filled with the Spirit. So this is not some sort of inaction. This is very much action. Allow the Spirit to work within you. How? By allowing the Word to work in you. By letting the Word of God richly dwell in you. Being filled with the Spirit means to be complicit with what He wants to do in you. Do you see the connection there? Don't think of this as some mysterious thing that's way out there and I just really hope that one day the Spirit fills me. Christian, be filled with the Spirit by allowing the Word of God to richly dwell in you and it will result in singing and thanksgiving and submitting properly to your authorities. Isn't that what you want the Spirit of God to do in you? That's what He wants to do in you. So allow the Word of God to to richly dwell in you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for clarifying to us our responsibilities before You as children of You. We are privileged to be called a part of Your family. We're privileged to be able to call You Father and to have Your presence even among us through the power of Your Spirit as He works through Your Word. 
We know that You will never leave us nor forsake us. But Lord, with that promise, we understand that we have responsibility. It does not move us to inaction, but rather that we ought to faithfully pursue Your Word and allow it to change us as we seek to understand it, as we seek to obey it more carefully like we would the traffic laws. We want... We want to get underneath the authority of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We want Him to control us so that we're not inhibited by the things of this world and impaired in our thinking, in our minds. And we pray that the result would be that we would have a church full of people who are allowing the Word to richly dwell in them and that it results in joyful singing from their hearts and in thanksgiving from all of us to You and also that we would be willing to submit to the authorities that You've laid out for us in our lives. Lord, we thank You for graciously showing us Your Word and helping us to understand more clearly what we ought to do. Now help us to be complicit to Your Spirit's work in our hearts even today as we think about these things. In Jesus' name, Amen.